0: And Father, it is because of your love and the love of the Son and the Spirit that we even can gather as forgiven people. We gather not because we are good or we are better than anyone else on planet earth, but because in your grace and kindness, you saved us, not on the basis of works, but because you regenerated us and bought us with the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is indeed marvelous that we can do this. So we want to sing this now, knowing that we will sing it for eternity. Bless us as we seek to know you better today in the study of your word. I pray that we'll listen to your word with attentive ears and ears that would obey. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are so blessed to gather and worship together and study God's Word. Today is the first day of the week. I think sometimes we forget this, that the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. It's not the last day of the weekend, sort of the last gasp of freedom. It is the day that should set the course for your week, a week of worship, a week of dedication, a week in the Word, a week of living in submission to God's Word. It is the first day of the week and we're blessed to study god's word open your bibles to first peter chapter one that's where we are in our study have you all heard of the judgment seat of christ sometimes it's called the bema b-e-m-a that's the greek word it was a raised platform that a judge would sit on the judgment seat of christ is often spoken of in contrast to the great white throne judgment which is where God separates the sheep and the goats, those who are believers and those who are not. The judgment seat of Christ, in contrast, is when Christ judges and inspects His believers and what we did as stewards of everything He'd given us here on earth. He reviews what we've done. This idea comes from a number of places in the Bible. For instance, it's presented in Romans 14, 10 to 12, Paul says to the Christians there, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us, he says in verse 12, will give an account of himself to God. We can see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. It says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is his due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. these passages are written to christians not unbelievers yes there will be a final judgment of the wicked there will be that separation of sheep and goats as i mentioned again that's often referred to as the great white throne judgment but there will also be a time when jesus inspects our works and he rewards us according to what we've done on earth this does not determine our salvation this does not determine heaven or hell this determines our reward james 2 verse 12 says speak and act again speaking to christians he says speak and act as those who are to be judged so we want to be able to give a positive account for what we've done as believers in our lives and we ought to do that with joy now i think it's important to note that our motivation for this for being able to stand before god and produce works on earth that honor christ this motivation is not flowing from a simple carnal desire for something that you get in heaven it's not a desire for another jewel in your crown you ever heard that some of you folks who love gospel music it's not about getting a bigger mansion than your wife or having more enjoyment as you dance down the streets of gold that is not the reward The reward is the glory of Christ. It's knowing and having greater and deeper fellowship with Christ. That's the reward. You could say it like this. The reward is Christ himself. And the more you know and honor Christ in this life, it pays dividends in eternity because the more you will enjoy him in eternity. It's like an investment that you make. You put money into an investment so that later on down the road you will enjoy the benefits of that investment if you invest in loving and knowing and obeying christ in this life now you will know him better and better in heaven and in glory obviously all christians will see receive some amount of reward but there are degrees of reward and that's what the great uh, excuse me that that, that's what the bama seat judgment is all about it's about seeing how we were stewards here on earth. Of course, Jesus gave a great parable about stewards and the reward that stewards stewards will receive. The reward they received ultimately is not represented in stuff or money or things or mansions. It's received when you re, when you hear those words of Christ, "Well done, my good and faithful servant." And what child doesn't like to hear that kind of affirmation coming from a parent when they when they say, "Good job." I didn't even ask you to clean up your room. I didn't even ask you to take out the garbage. And that, that is a reward that's even better than money, to, to have that affirmation and that glory that you share with uh, your superior. Well, that in multiple ways greater is what we receive in glory in eternity. There are a number of atheists that sort of argue against Christianity by saying, oh, well, you're doing what you do for a reward that you get in heaven. But again, that's based on the idea that we're doing what we're doing for getting something in heaven, like a mansion or glory or whatever. No, our reward is Christ himself. Our reward is Jesus and the glory that Jesus has and will give to his children. What's presented about the judgment seat of Christ is that we are indeed saved, and by what Christ has accomplished, on on our behalf and that reward then we get to enjoy christ our savior more and more we glorify god in our hearts here on earth in our thoughts and words and that glory will be greater expressed as we are in heaven well this reward is what peter is alluding to in verse 17 and 18 or really all the way to the end of 21. if you've been studying with us first Peter, it starts out in these great truths of salvation. And then we learned last week he then he begins to issue some commands. Therefore, he says, up in verse 13. And we underlined in our Bibles five commands. Something very common. A lot of uh, the letter writers in the New Testament did this. They would give us all these glories of who we are and what God has done and our position in Christ and all these blessings. Therefore, and then we have a number of commands therefore we see up in verse 13 let me cover the first two commands last week my plan today was to get to command three four and five but i realized as i studied command number three that uh, really it deserves its own time so that's as far as we're going to get today is to look at that third command Let me read to you again what we read last week, verses 13 to 21, but we're really going to be focusing on 17 to 21. That's where that third command is contained, and you'll note it as we go through this. Let me read this, follow along aloud. Verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, as He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you." who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. I'm reminded of a story about a young boy who was in his living room playing with his father, wrestling around as they always did, And they were enjoying their love and fellowship and wrestling around and laughing and enjoying one another. His dad suddenly stood up, straightened his clothes, straightened his hair, and walked over to the balcony doors. The little boy toddled behind him watching. His father opened the balcony doors and he stepped out. The little boy looked out and he saw thousands of soldiers as someone shouted, Attention! He heard thousands of hands slap to their sides. Thousands of feet clicked to attention. And he watched thousands of gloved right hands pop to a firm salute. That little boy's name was John Eisenhower. His daddy was Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe, of course, later president. John said later in his biography, It was at that time I understood my father was not merely my daddy. I thought of this story when I read verse 17. If you consider God as your father, he's not just merely your father. He's also your judge. And therefore, you ought to conduct yourselves in fear. Peter's been telling the elect exiles of all the glories of salvation. We studied those all the way to verse 12. No matter what happens to them, they're going to be secure. God is going to keep them not because of their own efforts, but because of his work through them, they will persevere. They will persevere all the way to the end. And we we learned even this is this is part and parcel to the doctrine of perseverance. It's not the doctrine of once saved always saved. It's the doctrine of perseverance. That God will work through every true believer and they will continue to persevere all the way to the end. Your salvation, the security of your salvation is not based on some prayer prayed or some decision made. The security of your salvation is based on God working through you, persevering all the way to the end. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He'll continue to work through you. He'll continue to secure this more and more all the way to the day of salvation when Christ arrives. And so Peter calls them to hope. He calls them to holiness because as they live their lives on this earth as exiles, they remember all these magnificent truths of God and what he's done in securing their salvation. God is without question our loving Abba but he's not merely a daddy he's the creator and sovereign of the universe who will one day call us to inspection and therefore we should fear god the Puritan Thomas Watson defined the fear of god as quote the reverencing and adoring of god's holiness and the setting of ourselves always under his sacred inspection he goes on and describes, he said it's not natural fear or biological fear like when you hear something scary happening at night and you think there's an intruder in the house. That's not the kind of fear that the fear of God is. He said it's also not a superstitious fear like fearing the many hune that crawl around your walls. He said it's also not carnal fear. I thought that was interesting. He said it's not carnal fear like the fear of someone in a foxhole. Suddenly they become religious right before the firing begins or right before the test happens, students. Suddenly you have this new world view. God, please help me. I didn't study one bit. Suddenly they become Christian. He said that's not the true fear of God. No, he said the fear of God is God honoring, is a life that is mingled with love and faith and prudence and hope and diligence. It's an act of worship. It seeks God's glory above everything in every single one of our actions, understanding that we're under inspection. I define fear this way. Fear is the constant sense of God's presence, power, and knowledge, and then the loving response of worship and obedience. Well, fear is the third command. Let's go through these commands once again. The first command was, number one, have hope. He said we're to set our hope fully on the grace that will come in Christ. We're to anticipate the reality uh, that is coming our way. There is a certain coming grace that all believers should enjoy and eagerly anticipate. Clear your mind, he says. Sober your thoughts. Make ready yourself with eager anticipation of the revelation of Christ. The second command found in verses 14, 15, and 16, he said, be holy. We are holy representatives of God and His holiness on earth. Like the Old Testament saints, we are to think different. We are to operate different, all to represent a holy God. We are not simply to indulge like a child, but rather we are to see the moral law as a means of glorifying God and calling others to Him. That's what it means to be holy. So command number one, have hope. Command number two, be holy. Command number three, and this is where we are today, fear God. Fear God. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, just pause right there. In other words, it's saying what that illustration I gave about eyes now. In other words, God is not merely your daddy who loves you and chose you and saves you and cherishes you and dotes on you and comforts you with the spirit he's not merely that he's also your judge i wrote down three things just in this phrase here the beginning of verse 17 that tells us something about god and his judgment first it says he judges impartially the word there literally is without respect to faces or a better idea is with no respect to human standing what that means is that we're all judged in the same way regardless of rank or accolades or respect or lack of any of those things that we gained on earth the youngest child of god who is a brand new christian will stand before god in the same way saint augustine or martin luther or rc Sproul did will or did i guess just to say rc Sproul passed away no one is looked on more kindly or is judged less severely than the other because of something they did. No one is going to be said, well, you read a lot of books or you wrote a lot of books. And so I'm just going to kind of look the other way and let you pass on through or just hand out rewards to you without thinking about your heart and inspecting you. This leads us to the second idea. The second idea says he will judge each one. Every single person, every single believer stands before Christ and God at the Bema. Again, no one is given a pass. Now, it's not just that God's going to judge impartially, it's that God is also going to make sure everyone stops for inspection. Everybody will stand for inspection. Uh, folks in the military, you know that those. Early days when you had to stand for an hour getting inspected and the senior chief or the sergeant or her gunny or whoever was walking through and you had to wait your turn and not one person got off. Not one person was told, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of tired of inspecting people. You go on in. No, every single person was inspected. Every single person, each one, will be inspected. The third idea is that he will judge them according to their work. Now, I'm not sure why the ESV translators say deeds right there, plural. It's in the singular, in the original. And I think the singular better is, is better translated as simply work. It's the whole of your life. Yes, it is the deeds and each and every of your deeds. But it also is the whole trajectory of your life it's your life's work so to speak the whole scope of your sanctification we have ups and downs you know this in the process of sanctification and growing to be more like christ you have times when you're taking one step forward and five steps back you have down times and up times what's the whole scope of your life is it more of a negative is it more of you retreating and barely making it back or is it a time of greater and greater victory did you kick and scream and fuss and complain about the commands of god in your life or were you humble and meek and willing what is the testimony of your whole life now here is the central verb of the passage the next phrase there in 17 if you call him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds or each one's work here's the verb here's the command Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. While you're here on this earth, while you're toiling and suffering and finding joy and living your life now, physically apart from your Savior, physically apart from your eternal home, as you live in exile, knowing who God is, your Father and your Judge, conduct yourself in fear. That's the command. And as I said, fear is not fright or some sort of nervous tension or superstition. It is living with a reverence and holy knowledge of God's presence. It's a desire to please Him. Again, the definition I offered at the beginning, fear is the constant sense of God's presence, power, and knowledge, and then the loving response of worship and obedience. Incidentally, that's why Solomon would say fear is... Is the beginning of wisdom when you fear God what you're trying to do is adopt his view on this world on your heart fear involves the confessing of sin right when you're confessing what you're saying is I agree with God about my sin I confess I am a sinner and this sin is gross I agree with you fear is saying I agree with you about my sin I agree with you about everything you know what's best, and the more you do that, the more wisdom enters your heart and your life, and you're able to, to see things as they really are, as God sees them. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. I'll pause here and return to that idea of reward, the idea that God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That idea is that the more fearful you are, the more fear you have in life, the more times you sense God's presence and respond in love and worship, the more times you are aware of this and living in that awareness, the more you experience the presence of Christ. And the more you experience the presence of Christ, the more you will experience the presence of Christ as your reward in glory. The ground-level motivation for conducting yourselves in fear is not only to dwell on the things that Christ has done for you, but it's reflecting on what Christ has done for you and honoring God with the same attitude. Peter, he is this fisherman from Galilee. He's not a learned scholar. And he says this idea of being fearful in your time of exile And again, for him, being fearful and conducting yourselves in fear and thinking of God as his judge, elicits in his heart all the things that Christ had done for him. This was his motivation. His motivation wasn't streets of gold. His motivation wasn't a jewel in his crown. His motivation was all that Christ has done for me. And so Peter then just erupts in all these words about what Christ and God have done for him. Now, it's interesting. Again, as, a, as someone who's not this learned scholar, he doesn't do it like, like uh, King David would. It's sort of a, a beautiful song. He doesn't give us all these words kind of like Solomon would with pithy little sayings. He doesn't even do it like Paul would, the apostle who was trained. He was an academic who gives it very logically and clearly. He just starts spouting as a... Fisherman from Galilee Wood, just all the things that he can think of all at once. And it just sort of comes out as this big word salad that we kind of have to figure out. What's he saying here? What are, what are all the words that he's saying here? What's gotten him so excited? Well, I break it down in several ways. I think what Peter wants us to do is to conduct ourselves in fear with the motivation of knowing and reflecting on certain truths of what god has done for us in christ so i wrote down three things maybe you don't write these three things down as well i didn't put them on the screen but uh you can listen to them number one i wrote down Know you were ransomed from futility by the blood of christ know that you were ransomed from futility by the blood of christ look there in verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know that the absurdity of any racism is that all of us are in the same boat when it comes to our ancestors. All of us have wicked, pagan Godless, you may just have to look at your own parents and you can see wickedness and pagan and abusive and murderous ancestors. Someone may say, well, your ancestors were bad to my ancestors, but go a little further and you might find out that your ancestors were bad to somebody else's ancestors. We all have 10,000 years of wicked ancestry. Going all the way back to that first fall and sure we might need to try in society to fight against racism i'm sure there's we can do a definitely do a better job in that but one way we could do that is for all of us to admit that we all come from the same crooked broken feudal human race we all need the grace of god the gospel of jesus christ is the most and the only true unifying force to ever exist Within the gospel of Christ, within the family of God, there are no castes, there are no levels, there are no valuations. We may have different roles in the kingdom, but roles do not equal value. We are all equally valuable. Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Galatians three twenty-eight and 29. Sure, there are roles. Sure, there are things that we must carry out, places that God has put us. But roles do not equal value. We are all one in Christ. We all equally needed redeeming. And redeeming from futility. That is how we're all redeemed. From the futility of our ancestors we're all in in going to inherit that futility if god does not somehow save us out of that futility well what did it take to save us out of that futility it wasn't money it wasn't gold and silver he said it was the blood of christ that's what peter is saying here all of us have forefathers who pursued money and glory and power even they might have even pursued immortality But ultimately, these pursuits were futile. They were vanity piled upon vanity. And without Christ, we all inherit that drive for futility. We all inherit that same futile mindset that pursues glory and power and possibly even immortality. We naturally have that futile, sinful obsession for pleasure and glory. But no one can achieve it. It is a vain pursuit, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. It is futile. I was thinking this week, in terms of futile pursuits, I was thinking this week of wealthy people, extremely wealthy people. Sometimes people put it to you this way. They say there are people who are extremely wealthy. These would be like famous actors or uh, ball players or something, and they're worth you know, millions and millions, perhaps even hundreds of millions of dollars they're in the system they have millions of dollars but then there are those who are extremely wealthy far wealthier than them and you could say these are people who have learned to game the system they figured out how the system works this would be like warren buffett or elon musk they figured out elon musk that figured out there's a huge pile of money to be had if you make electric cars and i can not make a profit for many many years uh, by building an electric car but i can become Inexpressibly wealthy He learned how to game the system. There are other people, those are the kind of people who are the wealthiest, who've learned how to game the system. Above them, though, are people. We don't have very many of them, probably none that exist right now on Earth, but above them are people who are the system. Throughout history, there are people, usually rulers, usually kings and queens, who were the system. They owned everything. They could buy and sell countries. Let me tell you about one of these fellows. His name is Jacob Fugger. He invented what would become the modern banking system in about 1500. Jacob Fugger, by today's money, uh, if you just convert what he was worth to today's money, it would be about 400 billion, but that doesn't actually tell the story. 400 billion in the 1500s was 20 times the GDP of the Holy Roman Empire. That means in our money, that would be about four hundred trillion dollars. This guy could buy and sell countries. He could buy and sell the whole military-industrial complex. He could purchase multiple. This guy had untold wealth. The reason I bring him up is because not probably not one of you in this room have ever even heard of Jacob Fugger. Look him up on Wikipedia. He's probably the richest non-ruler that ever lived. No one's ever heard of him 500 years later. He did all that work. He made all that effort for nothing. We don't even know who he is. In 500 years, no one, you might find Bill Gates or Warren Buffett in a history book. There might be some cursory understanding, but no one in 500 years is going to care. These are futile pursuits, and all of us, and all of our ancestors were caught up in the futile pursuits of wealth, power, influence, having stuff. That is all of us without the grace of God. That is who we all are. We needed to be bought out of that. And we, would, we couldn't be bought out of that because it's a sinful pursuit. We couldn't be bought out of that by money or stuff. It took something different. It took the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter says, you and I were bought out of this futility by the sinless Messiah. We're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. This is a reference to the Old Testament lamb that was brought into the family in preparation for the seder dinner so the israelites were in bondage in israel they'd gone through all the different uh uh, uh curses on egypt the plagues that were put on egypt to, to motivate pharaoh to let the people go he always turned turned against it and that final plague was not just a plague who was on that was on the people of egypt it was on the children of israel as well because they too Just like the Egyptians were pagans, they worshiped false gods. And so what God said is, you need to be covered. You need to be bought out by the blood of a spotless lamb. And so he told them, I want you guys to get a lamb in your family. Bring it a week before into your family. Bring this little spotless, cute lamb into your family. This perfect little lamb. Now, you parents know, if your family adopted a cute little lamb, immediately what would happen? Your kids would start feeding that lamb. There would be arguments about who gets to sleep with the lamb. (laughs) Who gets to cuddle. Who who the lamb likes best, right? You know that's what would happen. And the, the family would learn to love this precious little cute frolicking lamb. Until one night the dad would walk over to that lamb and he would cut its throat. And the blood would spill out. This is a picture of what happened to Christ, isn't it? jesus christ this loving christ no one loved more than jesus did no one lived a more perfect blemishes life than jesus did and one day through the hands of a roman government god reached down and killed his own son to buy us out of that futility that's what peter is bringing to mind know that you have been bought fear god knowing the price that he paid was to kill that blemishless lamb, the Son of God, to buy you out of futility into his, to become his, one of his children. The second thing I wrote down is know God's infinite, infinite plan that benefits you. He was foreknown, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake or for the sake of you. There again is that word, foreknown. That's not simply that God knew about something before it happened. No, it clearly means here that this is something that He predestined, He orchestrated. Those whom He foreknew, Paul would say, He predestined. This foreknowledge of Jesus is the mapped out plan of God from the beginning. Actually, from before the beginning, before the foundation, He says. Before the foundation of the world. In theology, this is what is often called the covenant of redemption. The Godhead, in perfect eternal unity, mapped this whole plan out creation, fall, the prefigurement with the people of God, the foreshadowing, and then the fulfillment of that plan by sending Christ, the incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection his ascension the course of history flows from that plan of redemption the other covenants flow from that plan of redemption the roles that the triune God would play a father son and spirit in regard to this world all flow from that plan of redemption this is all set in motion before the foundation of the world I want you to let this sink in. Think of that, the vast universe. Think of all that exists and has ever existed. The billions of galaxies spreading out across the universes. And then go all the way down to the vast, infinite world of microbiology, the infinite atoms and particles and molecules and cells. You have this amazing sovereign God who has controlled it all according to this plan. He rules it all. He set in motion this plan of redemption. We can't even wrap our minds around all that God is doing. And yet, he says, in that massive plan, he has decided to save some people. And in that massive plan, you get to benefit. This massive plan. And we didn't deserve it. It's not like God... We did something, and God said, I'm going to reward some people who are better than others. No, this is this massive plan that God has decided to benefit us. Now, fear God. Fear Him for this massive plan that includes you having infinite benefits. We've given God no reason to bless us, and yet He does, and He's included us in this massive plan of redemption from the foundation of the world. One more thing I wrote down very briefly. Know that fear flows from faith and hope in God. Verse 21, talking still about us who've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God who are the beneficiaries it's those who through him are believers now just to underscore what we've already covered in our study at first peter you're not a believer because of your own goodness or because you think you're better than somebody you're a believer through him it takes regeneration it takes the work of the holy spirit on your heart on your will to change you god is in you both willing and working his good pleasure god has to change my old dirty futile will Through Him, we are believers in God. That faith that is a gift of God, lest any man should boast, Paul said to the Ephesians. And what do we believe? We believe merely that Christ Jesus was a good man who lived for a while, or that the story of the Bible gives us some morals? No, it's infinitely more than that. We believe the whole presentation from the start, God's creation, our fallenness, God's redemption set in motion. The preservation of His remnant, the promises and shadows of Christ, the incarnation of God in Christ, the atoning death, the creation of His church and the new kingdom, the joy that all these promises will all be answered, yes and amen, all the way to the end of history. Where we'll see Jesus seated on His throne in glory forever and ever. That's what we believe. That's what we profess. And our faith and our hope, this is how fear is realized, in faith and hope, that all these things will be accomplished. Wonder of wonder, we're included in that glory. And we'll get to enjoy that glory more and more as we fear Him while we live on this earth. Well, Let's pray that God would inspire us to joyfully live in His fear, not just calling Him Abba, Daddy, but also to fear Him who will one day inspect us. And may we we be motivated by all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf for our benefit father we do thank you for all that you've given us and what a magnificent series of truths what magnificent motivation by reflecting and thinking on what you have done for us lord as we look forward to that day that we will be grouped with the sheep who have been saved not by our works but because of your grace May we desire to stand before you at that great inspection. And may we stand before you as people who lived our lives in fear, lived our lives anticipating and desiring the glory of Christ who's done so much to redeem us. We pray we would do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you would stand with me, let me read our benediction. I'm going to read directly from the book of Jude.